Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Sometimes it seems that while everyone talks about college, no one really knows how it works. Despite all the books that are published about the college experience and college adrift and beyond college and unbinding college, it's tempting after you've read a pile of such tomes to think that no one really knows what goes on in college right now as it actually is. Not most of the authors, certainly not parents or professors, despite what they believe, not administrators, and maybe not even undergraduates. In fact, I suspect that many of our most cherished things we actually know about college are things that we've been told but haven't really found out, things we assumed to be the case but have never actually questioned. In their book, How College Works, Daniel F. Chambliss and Christopher Takash subject their own school, Hamilton College in upstate New York, to a thorough sociological evaluation. What they found sometimes confirms prejudice and yet baffles it, approves of common sense observations, but also undermines them. All in all, How College Works is a fascinating read for anyone who works at a college, wants to go to a college, or wants their child to go to college. Daniel F. Chambliss is the Eugene M. Tobin Distinguished Professor of Sociology at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, and he's my guest today on Historically Thinking. Daniel, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. I, I should note to the uh, hardcore devotees of this podcast, and there are a few, this is not a conversation about history. I, I know that you're disturbed by that sometimes. Uh, this is one of our continuing occasional series of a, a user's guide to higher education. And I assure you that uh, if anyone else would uh, explain why the um, U.S. News and World Report score was a bad idea and doesn't show anything, or what the Nessie is, or how college works. Uh, if there would be another podcast about that, I wouldn't do these segments. But I really wanted to talk to uh, Dan Chambliss, uh, because you dig into all the myths and the, and the sort of half-truths that we believe is gospel, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating book. Well, we try to. Thank you. <laughs> I... Um, the let's sort of clear the ground. Uh, you first of all, you're not looking at Augustana or Harvard or NYU. You're looking mm-hmm. at Hamilton College in upstate New York, and that's just the way it is. You're trying to well. Think- that's that's certainly where the bulk of our research is done. But we um, we also looked at a lot of studies done of other colleges and na- nationwide studies of higher education and things like that. But you are trying to understand your place. And We're trying to understand our place, but with an eye to helping people at basically any place. Yeah, yeah. There's I mean, yeah. certainly there's it's a highly applicable as we'll see. Um, you use what sort of methods did you use to collect this da- this uh, this data? Um, well, everything we could come up with in social science. So uh, the heart of it was. Um, was an interview study where we uh, looked at a group of students, a hundred students, as they went all the way through college and then for several years afterwards, and we, where we were just talking with them, having conversations with all those people every year um, during their college experience. But we also did um, 
also did surveys uh, of thousands of people at OWAC. We did uh, a couple of uh, focus groups on specific targeted subjects. We did uh, observational research, you know, ethnographic kinds of stuff where you go and watch how people actually behave in real life. Hmm. Um, we did a variety. It was multi-method for sure. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to to see that sort of behind the curtain, the various ways that you squeezed everything out that you possibly could. Yeah, and we also did blind evaluations of students' work. We collected several thousand student papers written over a five-year period, hmm. um, and so we could track individuals as well as cohorts, and then um, brought in outsiders, took all the identifiers off the paper, mixed up the papers and had evaluators uh, grade them, basically, in a lot of different ways, and then see objectively whether or not students improve. So we did stuff like that as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to see that students actually did improve. Um, yeah, we were relieved, let me tell you. <laughs> um, Christopher was is an undergraduate student of yours, or was? Uh, he was, yeah. He was a student in... Um, uh, from 2001 to 2005, and then he's, he's a graduate student at the University of Chicago now in sociology. So uh, you don't always write books with your undergraduate students? No, 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 never. This is a first. <laughs> this is very cool. Um, you are interested as a sociologist. You're preoccupied, you're preoccupation, you're, you, you have an itch to understand organizations. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I, uh spent uh, quite a few years studying uh, world-class competitive swimmers and hmm. the teams that they came from. I studied hospitals a lot. I've done a fair amount of business consulting with, uh, you know, business organizations, especially in the financial sector, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, uh, a nice logical step in addition to the fact that you actually, as it were, live there. Uh, yeah, right, right. It's a, it's a, you know, capstone of the career is the way I think of it. Like, I've been working in colleges my whole life, my whole adult life, and mm-hmm. so I wanted to figure out, well, gee, what's going on there and what really matters to students and so on. So uh, if I've seen uh, videos and, um, and presentations in which you boil it down and mm-hmm. you say what a traditional college, a residential college in the classic model, what's it yeah. really all about? Yeah. And what is it all about? Well, uh, I guess the, the surprise is that... Uh, a lot of times people talk about college and they think about various programs and curricula and uh, what sort of degrees are offered and or what the facilities are like, something like that. But really uh, what we found is that by far the most influential uh, factor on students' success or failure was the relationships they had. So having a couple of friends and having at least one great teacher just have a huge impact. So the uh, the ascent the heart of college is yeah. ma- making relationships. Correct, that's correct, and, and it's not just in the sense of networking, like somebody who will help you find a job. It's it's um, in helping you through college itself. That is what motivates students. Are the rela- on on a daily basis? Are the relationships they're surrounded by, and if they don't find those relationships, uh, it's very hard to get to get fired up about doing any sort of school work. Or, since everyone is going to have some degree of relationship, it's also uh-huh. a, a poor quality relationship. Will oh, also, yeah, absolutely. Also determine. Absolutely. And when you say everybody has them, that's not to be that's taken not, for granted. No, um, especially at, at residential colleges, this is a, just a huge issue for students. 
Yeah, um, yeah. Do I have any friends, and who are they, and am I happy in my daily life? Yeah, I, I was just, uh, after class yesterday, I was sitting in a uh, bench in the hall talking with a student about why mm -hmm. she was considering uh, dropping out. Yeah. And that's exactly why. Doesn't have friends. That's exactly the reason. Yeah. That's by far the most powerful factor. A lot, a lot of research has supported this idea. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it wasn't seem, a big surprise. No, it seems also that, as I've said to people going off to college, that um, the two questions that we end up asking are, uh, will I get along, will I, people like me, and will I be able to do the work, which are the questions mm -hmm. we keep asking sure. as we go sure. to any job for the rest sure. of our life. Yeah. Um, you space divided each chapter has a very pithy uh, one-word um, uh, title. And so let's, uh, let's begin... Uh -huh with the uh, first, entering. Um, what are you talking about? and what? Well, especially if you're talking about uh, traditional age students, although it applies across the board, uh, going to college for most people is a big deal. Uh, they think of it as a new part of their life or a big transition or, uh, you know, opening new opportunities, something like that. So, so students at that point are really available uh, to meet new people and do new things in a way that's not true. It hasn't been true any time earlier in their life. And so they, uh, the first step in success in college is entering the college, that is, in, in figuring out how do I become part of this whole operation. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally for, for students, again, it, the most important step is making a couple of friends. Um, the remarkable part, it doesn't take many friends. It's literally two or three will do fine. But they've got to be able to find those people. And that's uh, sometimes quite difficult for some people. What I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot, those first three weeks, those first two, mm -hmm. two weeks probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are, is this the biggest social upheaval that they've experienced since birth? Or It's very possible, yeah. I mean, the exception would be kids who... Um, who have gone off to a boarding school or something like that, mm -hmm. where they've left home already. But, but for most students, um, at a residential school, it means leaving home, which is a very big deal, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and even um, even for for older students, let's say returning to college, I mean, they're very conscious that this is a big step, and so they want to make it work. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. yeah. Um, one. So there. The what can. Um, what are the important? I mean, how do sure. people make relationships in those first? Sure. Years? What did well, you learn about the, that? The, I think I think uh, most uh, most people when they give advice about this sort of thing sort of say to students, "Go make friends," <laughs> which is sort of easier said than done. That's that's kind of not the way life really works for most of us. Uh, you know what? What it really gets down to is just having um, routine, ongoing, regular exposure to us to a small-ish size group of people over and over. And the smallest, let's say, well, it's not that small. Let's say 20 to 80 people. If you, uh, for instance, if you're on a, a sports team that meets every afternoon to practice, you're seeing the same people over and over again. That's a way to make friends, a good way to make friends. Different kind of example that we really saw a lot of was dormitories. Um, if they're designed well, uh, you can make friends really easily in a dormitory. My um, my youngest daughter um, went to college where they had these huge, old-fashioned, long-haul dorms. Yeah. And um, when she moved in, 
I remember we got up there, and there's this long hallway with, with 20 rooms, and there were four girls in each room, you know, stacked up in these bunk beds, big shared bathrooms at the end of the hall, this huge crowd of people moving into the storm. And my wife and I were just delighted because we knew our daughter would make friends. Mm-hmm. You, you can't avoid them. Yeah. So that's the kind of situation you want. What you really don't want is to live in an apartment your first year mm-hmm. uh, off campus because you're not going to meet anybody. Yeah, the um, apartments uh, seem to be what people want but uh, don't know is actually good well, for them. That's right, exactly. And one of the reasons that approach is so bad is students find it appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they think they're going to have people come over and have a good time and all that, and they never meet folks. So it's a mistake. Um, you, interestingly enough, uh, not surprisingly to those of us who teach, perhaps, class is one of the places where people do not make friends. That's correct. A lot of good national research supports that finding, by the way. It's, it's pretty hard to make friends in class because your attention is focused on the teacher. Mm-hmm. The exception would be um, labs and sciences or, or uh, uh if they're a group project, sometimes you can meet people that way, but it's it's not a very efficient way of making friends. Mm-hmm. The um, it, it, that seems to have a lot to do. Well, as you say, focused upon the teacher, a uh, seminar table would change that dynamic. Um, phys- yeah, yeah, uh, to some extent. To some but, extent. But again, for whatever reason, the the national research just shows that. Students rarely make friends in classes. Yeah, I, I've I've noticed how at the end of a semester, if I'm mentioning the name of one student to another in the same class, yeah, they, they, they never recognize it. They don't know, right? right. No, they it's completely anonymous. In a, they might say, "Oh, that that red-haired kid who sits yeah. on the other." Oh, yeah, you yeah. Know, but that that's about it. That's about it. So yeah. it's dormitories, it's sports teams, uh, dormitory sports teams, certain kinds of extracurriculars. Uh-huh. Um, if you meet several times a week, at least, seems to be part of it. I mean, it's got to be pretty frequent contact, and it has to be a large enough group. Uh, three or four people won't cut it. You, uh, it, I mean, the choir is a great one. Right? Yeah, you you mentioned this later on in the in, in the study, but also the writing center yeah. turns out to be a, 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 a great place. Why is that? Well, the writing center, in the sense of the students who work in it, uh, is what we were specifically exactly. thinking of. There is. Um, Student, if you get a job in a in a setting like that where you're seeing again the same people over and over again over an extended period of time, um, that's that's a really good way to to make friends and connect. And, and the writing center example is interesting in our case because it really uh, affected the culture of college. That this group of students who are real they tend to be academically real good mm-hmm. uh, and motivated, and they're respected a lot for what they do. Getting them together tends to, tend to raise the intellectual um, temperature of the entire school. Hmm. Well, yeah. This might seem all very uh, touchy feely and friendships. Uh-huh. And what the heck is uh-huh. that? What yeah. the, has this to do? Yeah. Well, how do these friendships then affect? Does friendships of the first two to three weeks have a tremendous effect on everything about? Life and what are well, some of these impacts? Sure, sure. Because the problem, well, the biggest problem is, that as um, as in your earlier example, is that if a student doesn't make such friends, they drop out. I mean, they leave altogether. In which case, you can't teach them anything. Yeah. Or they leave psychologically, emotionally. They become depressed. They're sad. They're moping around. They don't have the energy to do any other kind of work. That's right. Um, 
so it, it matters tremendously. And, you know, faculty a lot of times will poo-poo this kind of thing yeah, um, and think it's sort of touchy. But if you start talking to the faculty themselves, they'll talk about, you know, having a friend in the department or their <laughs> colleagues are so great. Or I came to this place because there are these people who are excited about what they're doing. You know, and they're talking about we all We all live this way. Yeah. And, yeah. and I certainly think that um, for upper students, uh, upper level students yeah. who become more in contact, say, with people in the department, uh, they're, very, um, they're very well aware of that and they're very attracted to that, too, the friendship sure. within the department. Sure, absolutely. But if the, yeah, go the group ahead, works well. Yeah. No, no, if the group works well together and people are fired up, that will be. Yeah. You, you also, and I'll, I'll quote here, uh, you say, especially in residential settings, uh, mm-hmm. students jump to the level of work sanctioned by their peers. For yeah. better or often sure. for worse. Sure. Explain that. Please. Sure. Well, this is why it's important. You try to go to a college that attracts a good number of good students, if you can. By good students, I mean it's just ones who are interested in learning, you know, who want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, Al. This actually uh, reflects some earlier work I did on Olympic class competitive swimmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key to success in that field, you might say, is joining a great team. Uh, and that's an individual level sport, but I mean, most of the good swimmers come off of really good teams uh, where they're surrounded by other people who take it seriously and think this is important, think it's worthwhile to get up at four in the morning to go practice, yeah. which most people don't think, right? <laughs> so you want to surround yourself with people who are great at what you're doing, or if you're a, a musician, you know, you want to go to Juilliard or a place, a school like that, where you're surrounded by serious musicians because it makes the daily routine of work so much more appealing if everybody around you is doing it. And it, it creates, um, well, to use a sociological term, a, a, plaus- yeah. a plausibility structure. Yeah, in yeah, which this absolutely. Is, this is uh, sanctioned, and this is, what, this is what we do. This is what we do. That's right. If you want to be serious, uh, you know, career military officer, you want to go to one of the academies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, you um, can't just learn it on your own, say online. Right, and some, and then some units are better to join afterwards Correct. than others. Just Absolutely. Talking to and a they se- have a different, and they have a different tone, different style, different things they think are important, and that's where you want to be. You um the the next chapter is called choosing. Uh, choosing mm-hmm. what? Well, choosing, making all sorts of academic choices in particular is what we were thinking of there. How to pick courses, how to pick teachers, how to find a mentor, uh, how to choose a major, yeah. things of that sort. And again, the theme that sort of runs throughout is, um, is that in choosing those things, you're picking the people you're going to spend time with. Uh, and that really has a dramatic effect, again, on students' motivation to learn anything. So. Uh, if you become a geology major at, at some college, it may be those are certain kinds of people, and uh, you know they have a certain attitude about what they're learning and like doing. You know they like being outdoors, things of that sort. Um, versus, say, art students may be a different way. Or you know, if you're even if you're um, in a big program like uh, nursing, let's say, you want to find the great teachers. Right? You want to choose to go with the people who can offer the most and, and inspire you and help you and so on. So, it's, again, it's, a lot of the choosing, uh, part of the point in that chapter was that the college itself 
can have a big impact on how students make those decisions by what they make available. Yeah, I have to say that I've immediately implemented some of the lessons into my um, oh, great. teaching life because I, uh-huh. I went into class yesterday with the uh, course guide. Uh, yep. And I yep. said, most of this is irrelevant to you. Yeah, uh, that's which is correct. One of the lessons. What do you mean by that? Um, I, I remember as a uh, an anxious to get to college uh, high school senior studying the course guide lovingly and just being, mm-hmm. oh, there's all this wonderful stuff in there. Mm. But sure, take it away. But realistically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first off, a lot of those courses aren't available to you because you don't have the prerequisites. Right. Uh, and a lot of them are going to conflict with each other. So if you pick one, you can't pick the others. And it may turn out that some of them have really good teachers, and some of them, honestly speaking, don't. Mm-hmm. And you need to know that. And so really, um, most students are choosing from among a very small number of courses that they actually consider at all seriously. Yeah. And then, And then, as anybody who's taught knows, you know, things like the time of day that it's offered mm-hmm. have this huge impact on what students do. Um, and so so for, for faculty and deans and so on, scheduling just turns out to be monumentally important. You want to put great stuff right in front of students, so in effect, so they can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I've been department chair, I always try to, you know, I try to get my best faculty for, for particular subjects in a favorable spot in the schedule. So mm-hmm. the students will basically fall into those courses and then have a great experience. From a student's point of view, the key to success in a way is picking your teachers, not topics. I think students way overrate, you know, some some uh, course title they think sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter. What matters is just teaching. Yeah. It's uh, difficult, though, for students to figure out what yeah. exactly, who exactly is a good teacher. Sure, sure, it is. It's a problem. I, I, the best advice I can give is to ask around. You know, talk to other students, especially ones that are good. Mm-hmm. Try to find good, hang out with good students, what, yeah. they, what they're learning. So find a good student and yeah. ask them who a good professor is. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And again, by good, I mean people who clearly enjoy learning and want to get something out of this, mm-hmm. not just lie around, you know, be lazy. You, in other words, you have to decide which student you want to be like. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which, again, is why where you go makes a big difference, mm-hmm. because different colleges attract different kinds of students. What's and the so role? you want that fit. Excuse me? Yeah, what's the role of the advisor in all this? Well, we found, uh, and a lot of people have found, that advisors, in a lot of ways, are really not very important. Uh, and, well, I hate to say yeah, that. No, right? it's true. I think it's true. You know, it's sad but true. And it's true across the United States. And again, a lot of nationwide surveys always find freshmen and sophomore advising. It's really not, you know, not particular. doesn't matter much. Um, you know, things like the way the schedule is set up matters a lot. Who your advisor happens to be. I mean, you can lock into somebody who's good, but a lot of times the students aren't going to pay any attention anyway unless they really know the person and trust them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the advisor can say, do this, do this, do this, and then the student, you know, they do what they want. But um, it's not clear that advising matters much in the, in, the, in the sense of formal advising. Now, mentorship is a different thing. 
like if you, if you, a student, if you find somebody um, who's a great mentor, in other words, an adult who knows their way around and you can really trust, that's incredibly valuable. In fact, I think you know the Purdue study, uh, the Purdue Gallup study, showed that mentorship was essentially the most important good thing that can happen to a student. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very valuable. Speak uh, to touch on the faculty role again in in, uh, mm-hmm. in your fourth chapter. You're talking about uh, belonging, the arithmetic of engagement. Um, oh, yeah. What um, the importance of a poor professor in introductory class? What's the importance? Oh, the in- oh yeah, exactly. deadly. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really important to have good teachers doing the intro course. And and by good, I mean good in the intro course. You know, there are people. Professors are good at different things. And it's not. This is not the only thing that matters in life. But but having great intro teachers is really, really important. Because it legitimates the whole enterprise. So, again, students come into college, they're kind of open to things, right? They don't know, and they know it's a new experience. It's supposed to be different. And they walk into some class, and if it's tedious, dull, and stupid, and boring, they'll say, well, this whole thing is ridiculous. You know, they'll come to distrust that discipline, Mm -hmm. for sure, and maybe college in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas if they come into an intro class, and, and it can be a huge class, okay? It can be a 1,000 students, literally. There are uh, famous uh, courses around the United States, different colleges, where, you know, somebody teaches a 1,000 students, and they're there because they love it. And it's great yeah. and exciting and meaningful and deep. And that can, wow, you know, it can transform a student's view of education yeah, and of what's possible and of intellectual life. I I mean, it's, Very it's chastening reading that since... Um... Pedagogically, yeah. I probably I do not like the lecture. Um, yeah, and yeah. yet the research, even my own experience, uh, yeah. uh, my own autobiographical experience, and the, the uh-huh. data that you have shows that you know that a thousand person lecture yeah. with the right yeah. person who can actually give a lecture, which is prob- correct, which is probably one out of a hundred, to be honest. But uh, that's all you need. But that's all you need because they've got a thousand students. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right, and in those those huge classes. You realize arithmetically you're creating small classes everywhere else, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They're, they're, by by taking so many students in and giving them a great experience, it allows for the small class close contact in other places. You um, and when you discuss belonging, you discuss uh, you go back to the I mean the Ur sociological work Durkheim. Um, yeah, but yeah. you, um, this idea of a shared focus of attention, which yeah, we've, already, yeah. we've already touched on. That's why students yeah. don't know each other's name. But what's um, in a class? Yeah. But what's the? What else do you mean by shared focus of attention? How is that important? Yeah, this is uh, really. Uh, there's a sociologist at Penn named Randall Collins. He's really developed this a lot. Yeah, it's a fascinating um, stuff. But I've been. Yeah, I've been, yeah, oh, it's from Dirt. Yeah. Well, a shared focus of attention, meaning everybody knows that everybody else is thinking about the same thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So an example would be if you've got some great intro class and there's a book that everybody reads and they're all excited about it, it's important, and they're all talking about it, that's the way you develop an intellectual Mm -hmm. Um, At a a different level, something like a musical group or a choir, everybody's thinking about the music. Mm Mm-hmm. And they know that everybody else is thinking about it at the same time. And so they feel a kind of connection to the other people based on that. 
And that's fine. You know, people like feeling that sort of connection. It's one of the basic motivators of human beings. You know, you want to feel like you've got a link with somebody else. And so uh, to the extent that we in colleges can, can create those communities, that'll help students uh, believe in learning, I guess, for the rest of their lives. You know, if they've got friends who really like talking about the same books or studying the same subject, mm-hmm. working on the same piece of music. What um, you explain, um, a lot, many professors I, I, who were not part of a fraternity or sorority are always really mm-hmm. disturbed by Greek life, I've noticed. Yeah, sure. Uh, but you explain what Greek life is doing for students. What is that? Well, I agree. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> when we say Greek life, that covers a lot of ground. It does. From, uh, it does. Things like sororities today, for instance, are nothing like sororities in 1950. No. Which aren't like the way they were in 1900. I mean, they're totally different institutions in a sense. And sororities are not the same as fraternities, not at all. I mean, there are very different patterns uh, that go on in this two groups. Um, well, I, I mean, the obvious thing is that fraternities, sororities offer a kind of automatic group of friends uh, where, again, you've got repeated close contact with a, with a you know, reasonable sized group of people. So you're likely to make friends and meet people and so on. That's the good side. I mean, obviously, the, the bad side is, um, uh, it, it, depending on what the group does, uh, you know, they can take students in bad directions with behavior or attitudes about school or whatnot. They can also go in good directions. Sure. Um, so it depends. One thing we did see is that there's a tendency sometimes for, for students to join a group like that really early. Uh, to get kind of isolated from everybody else, mm-hmm. and that turns out to be a bad thing, and they know it's a bad thing. Yeah, that's uh, the, that's the double-edged yeah. uh, nature of exclusivity, I think. In, Correct, in exactly. So the smart way to do it is is to play it, um, and you know, you do it for a little bit and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that we saw people do that, but you know, a lot of places you can't really do that. Yeah, it's it seems to me that's the the sort of the uh, you know the same the benefits and the, the problems of say SEAL Team uh-huh. Six and the Olympic swim team. Um, yeah, you're exclusive, you're elite. It, it fosters that sort of uh, mutual self regard and pulling yourself. Well, well, uh, so does selective college. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're selective and elite and exclusive. That's the whole point. Yeah. You know, so it's a tough argument to say, well, it's the exclusivity. I, I think. Uh, um. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm no expert, really, on fraternal sororities. But, yeah. uh, but we did see that that was one kind of group in which people think. Personally, I think they're a better way to do it. Yeah. Um, you um, as mentioned uh, near the beginning of the podcast that you mm-hmm. had, you had uh, collected uh, thousands of papers and yeah. were delighted to see that students improved. Um what else did you discover about learning? Well, uh, a couple of things. One, like in, in students' papers, their, the quality of their writing, for instance, we, uh, we did a follow-up when we saw the way they improved and, and how that occurred over time. We did follow-up interviews with a lot of the students involved, papers we had picked up. And it turns out that a really crucial moment for many of them was a single meeting with a professor. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, literally one time, even in 20 minutes, sitting down and going over a paper in detail. Mm-hmm. And the reason that seemed to work was not anything technical. It was not that they learned, you know, how to use relative clauses or something, but um, they learned, they, they got a sense of this is a doable thing. You know, it's a craft. It's just a little bit of work you get a lot better at. Mm-hmm. And that somebody important cares about it and thinks it matters that I learn this. Mm-hmm. So it was that personal contact again. Just the sheer sense that somebody cares what I do um, was one of the big payoffs. And it affected their learning very directly. Uh, and it doesn't take much. I mean, that's the, the amazing part of some of these findings is that very little effort on the part of, say, a faculty member can just have a big impact on a student. I mean, you know this. You write one, you can write one word on a student's paper that that sort of captures the essence of what they're doing, mm-hmm. and the student might remember that the rest of their life. Yeah, um, I've, yeah. I'm beginning to believe I now write um, rather than write extensive commentary, mm-hmm. I, I just write "see me." And, yeah, that well, that works too, right? And. Um, but then we have that means we're going to have a ten minute conversation, which is going to right. se- create that. I was pleased to f- find out that you're va- you're uh, you're supporting my um, instinct. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And again, it doesn't take much, but it needs to be one on one. It needs to be face to face. Yeah. Face to face. That's another thing. Is just, I mean, online or written or so on is good, but boy, face to face is just uniquely powerful. For whatever reason, again, I think it's probably biological in the end. But yeah, what, yeah. Are, what are some other ways uh, that that uh, learning mm-hmm. learning actually works? Like the improvement in, in yeah. critical thinking, which I'm not sure yeah. we should probably just call that thinking. I'm not sure why it's critical. Yeah, but I know it, people but... always call. Well, yeah, I think critical thinking in the sense of uh, being willing to challenge, you know, received wisdom. In other words, not just applying a method, but but actually thinking, is this the right method, or uh, what are the assumptions here, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the, um, the key in, in something like learning how to think is not, um, is not so much technique as willingness to do it. In other words, you've got to have courage to be a critical thinker. Mm-hmm. And the best way, to, you've got to be willing to challenge something and say, I think this is right or wrong or whatever. And I think one thing that colleges can do is put students, for instance, in seminars where they routinely practice criticizing great thinkers. You know, you sit around a table and you read, I don't know, Darwin or Sigmund Freud or Karl Marx or Adam Smith or, you know, great thinkers in a field and, um, and say, gee, I think he's wrong about this or that, or this, this part makes a lot of sense, or wow, I'd never thought about that. And they're basically getting used to arguing with really smart people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way you do it. It's not, it's not a technical exercise. I mean, there is some of that, but mm-hmm. basically, again, it's immersion, you know. Um, yeah. Same way, if you want to learn to ride a bike when you're eight years old, what you need to do is hang out with the kids who are riding bikes. Because pretty soon you're going to really want to ride, <laughs> and you'll figure it out, and you'll watch them, and you kind of imitate them. It's not like somebody gives you a list of instructions. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, as we've been going along, there are a lot of obvious um, things that can mm-hmm. be done to make college better. As you mm-hmm. offer at the beginning of the book, these are ways that actually 
don't cost any money. Uh, yeah. More or less. Well, more or less. That was our goal. Yeah. Um, Everybody's got ideas about changing college that would cost a fortune. That's easy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you, uh, one of them, obviously, is something that our director of institutional research uh, advises new professors. Um, mm-hmm. One that comes out from this is that you need to see uh, a first-year student in your office within the first two to three weeks of college. Yeah, it's a good idea. And it will dramatically change the way they experience the next four Absolutely. years. Absolutely, and how they treat you. Yeah. I mean, self-interest works, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a really good idea. Uh, Just line them up. Make them come in. For one thing, then they get over the hurdle of coming in. Right. And it's the fun. And it will change the way they regard all future professors as well. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. A lot of what we do as professors, um, as you say, sort of affects the way students think about professors generally, mm-hmm. and certainly education generally. You know, if one person, if a student comes in and encounters one mean faculty member early on, they might think, oh, professors are mean. Yeah. And then the game's over. It's really dangerous. The, we've also touched on um, getting them into your office to go over a paper. It uh-huh. could take uh-huh. just five to ten minutes, and it's going to have yeah. a, a, a very much higher impact than the input. Output. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, what Get a lot of mileage for very little effort. Um, this extends, then, you make suggestions about creating spaces to, to actually help students make relationships. Um, oh, yeah. Would this apply to dorms? Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, Chris uh, Tackett, my um, co-author, and I are actually giving a talk at an architecture conference in a couple of weeks about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you want to have spaces in which it's easy for people to run into other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and where it's easy to meet and where it's easy to mix social, uh, activity with, uh, academic work at the same time, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So you think of this, you know, the second floor of a library, a lot of times will operate this way. So it's not, it's not right in the mass of traffic, but, but people are going by every so often. So it feels kind of pleasant and mm-hmm. friendly and stuff. But then students are also doing work at the same time. What, what's uh, interesting, if we did, dormitories as well. Yeah, if we did that, it would actually be cheaper than the way we build dormitories now. I just want to yeah, point that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the problem is dorms uh, and a lot of facilities are used essentially as part of the admissions program. Right. That, that you know, you spend a huge amount of money. I think of, for instance, on a beautiful swimming pool, let's say, um, uh, which which people look at on the tour and they go, "Wow, this is great, Mom! I got to go here." They're never getting in the pool while they're a student. <laughs> you yeah, know, so yeah. all that money is really effectively for admission. Yeah, it's yeah. advertising money. It's advertising, that's but, right. But, uh, Same for science buildings, yeah. art centers. Um, what are some other things that can be done? Uh, that can be done, um, uh, you mean to help students, yeah. generally speaking? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in the academic Part. Again, it's really paying attention to the intro classes mm-hmm. and who teaches them. Because once, if a student has a great experience there, they can put up with all sorts of stuff later on. And they can deal with a boring, you know, old fuddy-duddy teacher later if they know what can be gotten out of this, mm-hmm. you know, and what could be gained and so on. 
that's certainly um, an important factor. Um, let's see, in dorm setup. Uh, so what I, I mean, also, there's a there, you're suggesting something in the curriculum of uh, of a department that we yeah. it doesn't matter yeah. if you have forty or fifty students, even a liberal arts college in a class, just get over yeah. it as long as you've got the most dynamic and exciting professor in front of them and then funnel them into seminars uh, by the time Correct. by the time to, to increase that critical thinking. Right. And and your your professors are good at different things. You yeah. know, there are people who are going to be good at sort of a research lab kind of experience and others who are good in those intro courses. Somebody else is great at, at mentoring students, knowing mm-hmm. they're off and, and it's letting, making sure that everybody's doing the stuff they're good at, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the way many departments work. A lot of departments say, well, everybody has to teach this and because that's fair. Well, that's not the same as what's good for students. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would say you want to prioritize what's going to really help students at different points in their career. And for students, what can they do immediately to improve their experience? Oh, oh sure, easy. Uh, well, first off, uh, pick your teachers. I mean, really choose teachers over topics. Yeah. Uh, and the more you can do that, the better off you're going to be. Mm-hmm. I think that's virtually always true. Yeah. Um, and also for students, they need to put themselves in situations where they're going to meet people easily. Yeah. Uh, and you want to lock yourself into something. I, I think another example would be getting a, a job um where you're, um, you, know, you know, work-study job where you, where everybody comes by and has to check their ID with you or something like that. You're going to meet people if you're in the same spot every day doing something like that. Or you join some group, uh, you know, campus newspaper be an example, mm-hmm. where you're going to see a, 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 you know, a reasonable-sized group of people over and over again over an extended period because then you'll find some friends and uh, be able to really branch out. So meet people right away, and then you say very explicitly, spend your time with good people. Absolutely. Yeah. People that you, yeah. want, that you want to be like. That people, best that's self. right. No, that's right. That's right. If you find yourself be having an unhappy experience, check out who you're spending time with. Um, it, because that's probably a big chunk of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's true. I, and I'm and once in a while, right you've got to be deliberate about making those moves. Uh, in our research, um, the women were much better at this sort of thing. And a lot of men just sort of floated through, mm-hmm. um, not really paying direct attention to what was happening. And so they're, they're kind of at the mercy of the system a little more. Yeah. That, that may be an unfair generalization. No, I, I, I think anecdotally, in my own observation, yeah. I don't understand. We could spend another podcast about that, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Undergraduate men are really an interesting um, study focused to me. Yeah, I don't yeah, quite true. get what's going on with them. But, uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> I uh, can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember either. That's I'm sure right. I was fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, what doesn't work? As we uh, close down the uh, conversation, as we move to the end, what uh, what are some things that doesn't work? You you claim, I believe, yeah. a, to have a great fascination. You love strategic planning, and it's it. it <laughs> It hurts you to say that it uh, actually doesn't work. Well, I, I love it only in the sense of I enjoy having those conversations. Sure, sure. Uh, it's fun, you know, and yeah. that may be a worthwhile reason to do it. But strategic planning of all sorts, you know, where you have two dozen committees and they're all task forces working on different issues. 
Uh, I've been in higher ed for 40 years now, and I actually served as a, an accreditation commissioner for the Northeast for seven years, I guess, six, seven years. And I've read hundreds of these strategic plans. As far as I can tell, I don't know that – I don't want to quite say this, but I'm almost there. I'm not sure any of them has really made a difference in the education of any students. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work, a lot of time that winds up, you know, as they say, collecting dust on a shelf. You know, you have a big report, everybody's impressed, and nothing happens. Yeah. It's just a very unreliable way to make something occur. It's, it's a lot of work for not much payoff. And what we're trying to suggest are things that take very little work and are basically, basically guarantee a good payoff yeah. in terms of students' education. And uh, that's what we're looking for. Well, if you you've offended half of all faculty and administrators with your <laughs> that, and the other half, like myself, I don't. My, my, I don't my, think my, it's the <laughs> yeah, No, I know. It's, they, it's more, we've all been there. I mean, yeah, I've got to, you know. Yeah, the other half, yeah. like myself, who already didn't like strategic planning, are offend, <laughs> offended when you say a pedagogical innovation doesn't really work either. Why not? Well, no, no. It's it, it it's not the pedagogical innovation doesn't work, it's that it takes a lot of effort yeah. to get a little bit of payoff. Yeah, uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to convince somebody, for instance, if somebody's, I don't know, 50 years old, and they spent their whole career doing things one way, getting them to change is going to take a big push, especially if they've been successful, mm-hmm. you know, if they've done well in their career. Um, and so i it, again, it's not that it doesn't work. It's fine to do it. It's fine to try stuff. I mean, I you know, I, I like doing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you're looking at, at a, an entire institution, it's an inefficient way to get improved. Okay. What are some other things we could add to that list? I was thinking in terms of there's a, a sort of faux focus of a, an ersatz focus of attention like campus book. That can be good, but oftentimes it's... Yeah, it you mean, I'm sorry, you mean a book that everybody reads? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those, I think that's a great idea. But. The trick is it's got to be the right book. Yeah. And that, I think, may be harder to pull off than we think. Yeah, and I think that's you, right. But you not only need the right book, you need the right people involved. Yeah. You need your, again, your best people have to be fronting for this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, uh, here's one, if you're president, and dean of faculty aren't willing to participate. Mm-hmm. And wow. Maybe you know, maybe it's not that great a thing. I, I don't know. I mean, people do it, and sometimes they work. Yeah. And if you find one that does work, that's great. Go with. My guest yeah. today has been Daniel F. Shambliss. He's co-author with Christopher Takash of How College Works. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today on Historical. Thank Thinking. you, Al. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps the WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.